Well, good morning. It is good to be here with all of you. We have just read Psalm 145, so please keep your Bible open. You will do well to, to follow along with me. Uh, I'm going to be reading this morning out of the CSB, not for any other reason other than the pragmatics of I have a super giant font Bible and I can see it without glasses. So that, that's what I'll be doing. But, but sometimes it's, it's helpful and fun to be reading along in your translation as, as someone reads another and it's, there's, there, there's much to be gained by the, by the contrast in, in what different translators have, have understood the, uh, the reading of this to be. Uh, would you pray with me very, very briefly? Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and, and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, a amen. Well, it's uh, good to be back here with you. I, I bring you greetings from Western Seminary, where I teach, Hinson uh, Baptist Church, where I'm a member. I, I serve as an elder, and, and um, they're meeting outside today, uh, which is odd for Hinson. Um, because of a, a mask mandate that, that has been put on the city, or on, on the state, really, and, uh, and, and we live in a very progressive uh, part of, of Portland, to be sure, and so, uh, but they'll be praying for us here in just a, in, in just a bit. Um, a few months ago was the uh, funeral memorial service for, for Prince Philip, who was the husband of Queen Elizabeth. Did anybody watch any of that, or see highlights, or... Okay, so, so there were a few of you, good. Um, I, I don't know if that makes you an Anglophile or not, but uh, uh, my, my wife loves things uh, associated with the royal family of, of England. Um, and, and, or maybe people might have watched just because you're in, intrigued by, by royalty. And, and, and if you watched, you were treated to much, not all, but much of the pomp and circumstance uh, that, that England could muster, at least in, in that this COVID environment, right? The, the mood, of course, was, was somber because it was a funeral, so it didn't really match the joy of a royal wedding, say, but it was still an impressive display of royalty and majesty. Now, if, if you were watching it, maybe you were particularly interested, like I was, with the recitation of Philip's titles. Well, I'll give you a sampling, just a sampling. Here's what was read. The late, most illustrious and exalted Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marianneth and Baron Greenwich, Knight of the most noble order of the Garter, Knight of the most ancient and most noble order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, upon whom has been conferred the Royal Victorian Chain, Grand Master and Knight Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom, one of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Admiral of the Fleet, Field Marshal in the Army, and Marshal of the Royal Air Force. That doesn't even include the titles that she had by virtue of being husband to the Queen, nor does it include all of the titles that Philip gave up just in order to marry Elizabeth. I mean, can you imagine this guy's business card? It's just enormous, right? And, then, <laughs> okay. and, 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 and nobody laughed. Maybe if I would have said it in like a British accent, the Royal Order of the Thistle. I mean, what, what is that, right? Uh, but it's probably cool, right? It's probably cool. So it, it was really quite a display of majesty. And, 
And, and it, in the best of times, we are intrigued by royalty because there's a gravitas, there's a weightiness, isn't there, that, that attends royalty. The titles, the clothing, the attendance, all of the splendor. We almost automatically associate majesty with, with greatness, or we expect things that are majestic to be great, and, and greatness is supposed to attend majesty. But the question before us today is, does goodness, does goodness? In our text this morning, we're going to look at a psalm that celebrates the majesty of God and the declarations of God's kingly royalty. They are impressive in this psalm. But surprisingly, surprisingly, the psalm celebrates something that we don't always associate with majesty, but the biblical authors did. So this morning, if you're, you're here, you're listening, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian just, just yet, I would invite you to consider this psalm, our study of it. Ask yourself, what would be more important to you in a God? Greatness or goodness? Which do you need more? And, and what if the God preached today is the one true God, and he is what this psalm says he is, both great and good? Now, for the rest of you, you understand yourselves to be Christians. What ought your response to be to this God who is absolutely great, but whose greatness is rivaled only by his goodness? In fact, his goodness is all tied up in his greatness and vice versa. So the big idea that I have this morning for you is this. Our God is supremely and uniquely worthy of praise because he is both great and good. Holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, right? Holy other, entirely separate. And tenderly near to his people. Okay, so let's, let's dive into this psalm. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it, we have a call to praise God. And, and David, or someone writing for David, it's a psalm of David, we're told, writes this, I exalt you, my God the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. So in this psalm, right off the bat, David recognizes God to be his king. The king recognizes kingly royalty. And David is committed to extolling God. And, and not just for a moment, right? Not, not just when it's convenient, but forever and ever. Because in David's estimation, this is a God whose worthiness does not expire, right? It, it doesn't wane with time. This is a God whom he would never grow bored with. But why? Why is that? Well, who is this God? Why is he worthy of such adulation, such eternal adulation, right? Forever and ever I will praise you. And, and the rest of the psalm is really committed to explaining why God is worthy to be praised. And we find, beginning in verse 3, that it's because of the greatness of God, that is, his transcendence, his transcendence. And I'll, I'll, I'll define that for you. God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is transcendent. That is, he is wholly other. 
He is high and lifted up beyond all. So let's begin in, in verse 3. Verse 3, the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And so right off the bat, David praises God because he is great. And we might think, well, well what's greatness? What is greatness? And, and you might think, hey, maybe there's some really cool theological definition of greatness. And uh, sorry to disappoint you. It's, it's probably what you would think that, that, it, that it is. Greatness has to do, in the Bible, with like being large or significant or imposing. Greatness often has to do with abundance, kind of what we would expect. In, in the scriptures, a great river is enormous. A great army is formidable. And a great God is awesome. Awesome. So the greatness of God is usually not listed, if you were to take us like a theology course, as one of his attributes. Kind of like love would be, or, or compassion, or power, or knowledge. But when God is extolled in the Bible for his greatness, he's being praised for something we call his transcendence. His transcendence. Now, what do I mean by transcendence? To say that God is transcendent means that he is wholly other than us, entirely different than us, qualitatively better in every possible way. He is the great God who rules over all that he has made. And the list of all that God has made is exhaustive, right? It's exhaustive. God is the powerful one. He is the strong one. He's, he's fearsome. Transcendence often speaks to God dwelling in heaven. He's the one who lives on high, we might say. He is far from sin. He is high over creation. It speaks to God's exaltation. So there's, I keep, I keep going up, right? Up, lifted up. This is, God is transcendent. He is, he is distant from us, not because he can't be near, but because he is so awesomely better than us in every conceivable way. And in particular, transcendence speaks to God's majesty and holiness. And, and, and in our passage here, we're told there's, there's no one like the Lord. In our passage, we see that the greatness of the Lord is unsearchable, unsearchable. That's what we read in verse 3. That means that it can't be quantified. If we had like a measuring tape of greatness, it would, it would run out before we got to the end of God's awesomeness, right? We, we can't wrap our arms around the greatness or awesomeness of God. We're told that God is incomparable. The, the, the Lord is the creator. He's so radically different than his creation. There is nothing that compares to him. To try to compare God to anything would be foolish. And, and at some point, language just breaks down. There's a word we use for that, ineffable. Right? God is, God's greatness is ineffable. It's, it's like indescribable. But that doesn't stop the biblical writers from trying to describe it, and David's going to give it a try. So he's going to recount the works of the Lord, and they are many. God is mighty and strong and powerful. God always has everything that he needs in order to do whatever he wants to do. He's absolutely independent. He's the self-sufficient one. He has no needs at all. 
After God had delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, we get that great duet between uh, Moses and, and Miriam, and they sing, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? Again, for those of you who, who might have seen the, the, the funeral of Prince Philip, there, there was pomp and circumstance there. But as impressive as all that was, it, it pales in comparison to all that attends the Lord every moment. God doesn't just reign in majesty. His majesty itself is glorious. That, that is to say, his majesty is weighty, weighty. There's, there's a gravitas that attends the Lord, and it's almost palpable. If we could somehow be transported right now, just as you are, into the throne room of God, standing in his very presence, I don't think we could survive. I think that's why we're going to need new resurrection bodies before we stand before God, right? Because in, in this material body, it, God is just too awesome, too awesome. I'm speculating there. I don't know that for sure. But, 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 but I think that's probably the case. Look at verse 4. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts, and I will declare your greatness. David's praise is directed. It's directed. His instruction is that one generation will declare God's works to the next. And so, so friends, our praise of the Lord's mighty works, they play a vital role in the lives of others. Have you thought about that? That, that your praise, your public praise, as you speak to others, it plays a significant role in their life. We give testimony to the mighty acts of God to one another as praise and as witness. And so I think that means that we need to make our praise public. Now, of course, there's a place for private devotions and private prayer, but, but I think more than anything right now, our world, our, our, our country, this, this area, this city, it, it needs to see and hear public proclamation of the wondrous works of God. Why? Because the cultural narrative it undermines belief and it undermines faith. Science, or, or something that falsely masquerades for science today, intersectionality, those have become the gods of this age. And, and, and the high priests of the culture, they demand obeisance and worship. And woe to the one who refuses to bow the knee, mouth their liturgies. Excommunication comes in the form of canceling, and the price is high. So, literally preaching the choir here, keep coming on Sunday mornings, right? Uh, join with God's people, assemble with the body. Now, of course, public proclamation to unbelievers is, is very important, but, but when we are here, we're singing to the Lord, right? We, we sang these songs of the greatness of God, but we weren't just singing to God, were we? We were singing to each other, too. And, and man, I, I need that. I, I think all of you need to hear everybody around you singing of the greatness of God. 
Sometimes you know, your week wasn't quite as great. Sometimes your faith, it, 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 it ebbs and it flows. And so gather with God's people and hear them instruct you about the greatness and goodness of God. It's encouraging. We, we need that. That's why it's so important to be able to hear each other sing. And I appreciate that about this church. And it takes all ages to be doing that, right? It takes all ages. I need to hear from those who've walked with the Lord a little longer than I have. That's really encouraging to me to see people who are older than me hanging in there week after week praising the Lord. But I like to see younger people than me too. It lets me know, hey, this thing, it's, it's, it's not going to die with me, right? Uh, it, it's, that's encouraging. We need all of it. And that's why David says, generation instructing generation. You might have heard it said that Christianity is like one generation away from extinction. Now, I think that's a bit overplayed because Jesus is sovereign, right? And he's going to build his church, okay? And, and so our failures are not going to cause the church to fail. It's in good hands. But, but, that statement is frighteningly true in this sense. The church marches victoriously into the next generation by virtue of our confession, not our birthright. No one automatically becomes a Christian. No one is automatically reborn by virtue of parentage. Each person hears the gospel and responds in time and space to the gospel message. And so, we know, right, we know that, that that gospel message, it's not just a sales pitch or a gimmick. It's a proclamation of the mighty acts of God to save sinners. It's a God-proclaiming praising of the wondrous work of the Lord Jesus Christ in going to the cross on our behalf. It is a God-exalting proclamation of the awe-inspiring act of raising Jesus Christ from the dead. It, have you thought about that? That the, the, that the gospel itself is a mighty proclamation of the greatness of God. And so speak of that. Speak of that to one another. Speak of that to your neighbors. But David isn't just praising God for his greatness in this passage. He also praises him for his goodness. Look at, look at verse 7. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So verse seven, we have a bit of a transition here in David's praise, and it's here that things get both interesting and wonderful. God is praised for both his great goodness and his righteousness. These are not attributes of transcendence, you know, of the high and exalted, the lifted up one. These are attributes of what we typically associate with his eminence his eminence. Okay, what's his eminence? Well, it's kind of the opposite of transcendence. The eminence of God is his nearness. It's his nearness. In contrast to transcendence, where God is wholly other and so radically different from us that he dwells on high, eminence stresses God's involvement with us here. His intimacy with his people, his, his touch, his, his care, his concern. Eminence extols a God who is close. Transcendence extols a God who is high and lifted up. 
eminence celebrates the God who comes down to dwell with his people. And so we find here that God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is eminent, tenderly near to his people. And so when we speak of the God who's near, we speak of the God who, who sees you, who sees you, knows you, he hears you, he heals you, he gives gifts to you. And it's the testimony of the entire Bible, this psalm in particular, that God is good. God is good. All right, well, what does that mean? When we say that God's good, we say that he's benevolent. He's benevolent. God, God acts for the benefit of others. And the rest of the psalm is going to flesh out what the goodness of God is. Let's look at the, at the attributes of the nearness or eminence of God in this passage. Verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. Here, David, like so many biblical authors, goes back to the most quoted and most alluded to passage in all of the Bible, that strange passage in Exodus 34. In this case, Exodus 34, verse 6, where Moses asks the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And so God responds by sheltering Moses behind a rock, you know, putting him in the cleft of the rock uh, because it, it, it protects him in some way. And, and then strangely, when you're reading it, strangely, God parades before him, but we're not told what he looks like at all. We're only told what Moses hears. And this is what Moses hears. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faith, faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What, what an interesting passage, right? God Show me your glory, Moses says. Okay, go hide behind that rock and listen. I am compassionate. I am kind. I am loving. That's the glory of God. And we learn here that God's glory is tied to more than just his resplendent majesty. I mean, that's what we would think with glory, right? Isn't that awesomeness and, and blinding light and things like that? right? Where God is wholly other than us. He's just unapproachable so far from us. That's how he is glorious. And God, at least to Moses, and really through this Bible, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. All that's true. But if you really want to know how glorious I am, I'm a loving God. I'm a compassionate God. I'm a kind God. Now, what are the things that are extolled here in this, this verse that we just read in Psalm 145? Well, we're told God is full of grace. To say that God is gracious, to say that he grants goodness and kindness to sinful people. When God has nothing to gain by being kind. He doesn't have anything to gain by being kind to you or to me, right? I mean, it's kind of humbling. You're right. You know, well, of course God wants me on his team, right? Of course he wants me on his team. Well, no. <laughs> you know, you're not that necessary. Not that necessary. Right? 
God really doesn't have anything to gain by being generous or kind to you. It's not like you can give him something that he lacks. That's what grace is. The compassion of God. To say that God is compassionate means that he's moved to kindness through mercy and pity. That's what motivates Jesus the most. Have you noticed in the Gospels where it says, uh, or, you know, right before Jesus would heal someone, he was moved by compassion. Moved by compassion. And, okay, I, you've, you've heard me enough to, that, you know, I, I don't talk a bunch of Greek most of the time unless it's funny or interesting, and this is both. Um, so this, this, this word for compassion is splunkna. Splunkna. Yeah, it's, it's an awkward sounding word, but man, it is wonderful. And it literally means bowels. Bowels. And you can, he was moved in his bowels when he saw something. Now, in, in, in English, an idiom for us would be something like, and Jesus' heart went out to the person, and so he healed them. But literally, Jesus saw it, and his stomach flipped, right? He's moved. He's affected. He's affected by what he sees when people are in need. And, that's, and, and that, that's the word for compassion. That's the word for compassion. It's what motivates to action. We're told that God is patient. God's patient. To say that God's patient is to say that he's long-suffering. Our God is a God who waits. Praise God, he waits, right? But yes, praise God. Have you ever thought about that? Man, I, I just love our God because he waits. He waits. But we should delight in that. He doesn't strike out in judgment, which is his right. But instead, he endures and he waits and he waits and he waits. In, in, a, in a way, the patience of God is the, the opposite of compassion in this important sense. Compassion moves God to action. God's patience restrains his action. And that's a glorious truth. We're told that God is full of faithful love. And that's that Hebrew word that I'm sure you've heard, chesed. You gotta, you gotta like, have saliva in your mouth when you say it. Chesed, chesed, right? It's, the, it's, it's faithful love or loyal love or loving kindness in the NASB. It means that when God makes a promise to love a people, he stubbornly keeps loving that people. It's like blood love, if you will, where blood is thicker than water. It's like a mother's or a father's stupid love for their kids, right? And, and maybe that's not that bad of a translation of, of chesed. It's stupid love. And isn't it great that there's someone who just loves you stupidly? Like, in, in spite of all you are, in spite of everything that you bring to the table or what you don't bring to the table, there's someone who just delights in you. And that's our God. That's our God. And in God's economy, that's what makes him glorious. That's what makes him glorious. I mean, look in, in the rest of the psalm at all of these imminent attributes that speak to the reality of the God who's near. Verse 9, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made, verse 10, will thank you. Lord, the faithful will bless you. Skip down to verse 14. The Lord helps 
all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. So I'm not sure if we totally understand how how incredible what we just read actually is. We're we're, we're so used to the kind of language, this kind of language of God, that that we almost take it for granted, but, but we really ought not to. I mean, what other God is both transcendent, high and lifted up, and imminent, near? A God both transcendent and imminent. That, that's, that's unheard of in the pagan pantheon of gods. A God who is both high and exalted, who also stoops down to compassionately care for his people. Who else but our God is like this? I think this is brilliantly illustrated in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Y'all read that where, you know, the, the four humans are there in Narnia and, and, and they're about to meet Aslan, the great, he, he's the Christ figure, but he's the great king, but he's a lion. And, and they're not, Susan and the, the, the rest of the Pevensey children, not quite sure what to make of, of this lion. And so I'll pick up the story here where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are saying, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, <laughs> I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's that's beautiful because it's thoroughly biblical. This combination of transcendence, great king, not safe, and eminence, all through the Bible, and it's one of the many things that separates the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Jesus Christ, from all other contenders to the throne. Yeah, I, here's one instance, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and 11. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. This is language of transcendence, awesome power, high and lifted up. Behold your God. Very next verse, verse 11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Behold your God. We should marvel and delight in this great God who is simultaneously, transcendently great and imminently good. And, and, and what this means, if we think about it, is that God is not merely one who sees our hurt uncaring from on high because he's omniscient and knows all. It means that he sees our hurt because he's omniscient and knows all, but then is moved by compassion and then has all of his greatness and power to attend to you. If God is moved by compassion to help you, then there is nothing on heaven or on earth that can keep him from acting. If God is committed to patience, there is no power or authority in heaven or on earth that can direct him to act before he wants to. We have to delight in the God who is both transcendent and imminent, the God who's high and lifted up. So our prayers ought to reflect that. We should be reverent in our prayers. And and, and I love that about this church. 
the public prayers and the worship service are reverent. Why? Because God is transcendent. And, but we should also, and I love this about the church too, what we just heard, we should be bold in our requests because God is imminent. He's the one who hears. We got to never waver in doubt or unbelief that God has what it takes to care for us because he is great. But we should never waver in unbelief that God will do what is best for us because he is good. At, at the text we just read, he lifts up the oppressed, he helps those who fall. God is the good and benevolent provider, we're told. Christian, every good thing that you have comes from the hand of God who has lavished you blessing upon blessing. And, and, and maybe, maybe you don't feel today like God's been lavishing blessing upon blessing upon us. I mean, I, I get it because there's still need. There's still need. But, but, but remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, he who did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? He's already done the hardest thing. The, everything else is easy in comparison. Maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian at this point, but I, I would say you need to understand that God is good. He's good. And according to the scriptures, every good thing that you have comes from him. Even those things that you've worked for, they are a generous gift of a benevolent God who loves you and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Every breath that you take Every morsel of food that passes your lips, every beat of your heart is the gift of a generous God. So, so, so all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, we have to respond with thanksgiving. Now, now I've already said God is self-sufficient and independent. He doesn't actually need us. He doesn't need your thanks. But the scriptures are clear that he desires your thanks. Christian, are, are, are you self-consciously thankful? Or do you fall into the trap of believing sometimes that, that, that you deserve everything that you have, that, that you've somehow pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, whatever that means? David confessed that the faithful bless the Lord, that, that all should thank the Lord. It's an act of faithfulness to give thanks. Maybe sometimes you don't know what to pray for. Right, your quiet time, and you're there. You're ready to pray, but you don't know what to pray for. Two things: you'll never go wrong. Praising God for His glory, and giving thanks. You'll you'll never go wrong if you land there. If you land in those two places. Rehearse the blessings of God in your life, and thank Him for everything that He's done. You remember that old hymn, "Count Your Blessings." I'm not even sure you'd call it a hymn, right? Um, you think, wow, I thought you were like a theology professor. Really, you're going to quote that as? Yeah, there's actually really pretty good theology in this one, right? So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Look at verses 11 through 13. God's kingdom is the way that it is because God is the way he is. We see verse 11. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. 
So here in verse 13, we have this fusing of greatness and goodness again. The God who is the awesome king, his dynasty is unparalleled. It is unthreatened, is simultaneously faithful and gracious. And here we learn something vital about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is and forever will be what it is like because the king is who he is. For, for David, the kingdom of God was, was kind of a distant hope. For us, though, we're told by Jesus, the king of the kingdom, that it's already begun. But what was true of David is still true for us. The kingdom of God is what it is, and it, and it will be what it will be forever because God is who he is. That is, the kingdom partakes of the character of the king. And that's happy news for us because our awesome transcendent God who is high and lifted up, terrible in power and wonder, is simultaneously the eminent God who is moved by compassion, full of grace, committed to loyal covenant love. So the kingdom of God is full of mercy, compassion, grace, and faithful love. Why? Now, we, we might think, well, kingdom of God, yeah, it's going to be glorious and powerful and other transcendent things. But Jesus, at its inauguration, led with the eminent attributes of grace and mercy and compassion and faithful love. Now, the glory and power and splendor of the kingdom will come. But Jesus introduced first those imminent aspects of the kingdom, didn't he? Jesus Christ, who is the king of the kingdom, presented himself not as a king resplendent in glory, but as a king who draws near in humility and compassion. He, Jesus introduced himself and his qualifications to be king this way. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is a gentle king who is good. And that goodness manifested itself in grace and compassion and mercy. Jesus came to build a kingdom but to build it on a foundation of all that he is in both his transcendence and his eminence. Because remember, this, this Jesus, who is the one who said, I'm gentle and humble, is simultaneously the eternal Son of God. The second member of the Trinity, who came not as a conquering king on a stallion of victory this time, but entered our existence as a small baby born in the most humble of circumstances. He came not demanding obeisance, service, but he came healing and feeding. That humility took Jesus all the way to the cross where he would die the humiliating and just death that we deserve. And he did so willingly out of love for God the Father and out of love for you and me. The cross was shameful, but we are not to be confused by it or fooled by it. Jesus is simultaneously almighty God, possessing all the transcendent attributes of greatness. And we get a hint of that in the resurrection, don't we? He rose triumphantly from the grave. So call to this Lord while you can. Look at the last few verses, verse 18. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. 
If you're listening and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you didn't understand that the nearness of God comes with a sharp edge. Because God is near, the wicked are deluding themselves if they think they'll get off scot-free. God is watching, and he is ready, able, and willing to judge. And if God is the way this psalm describes him to be, then how could he not judge? In fact, we're told here that his judgment is an expression of his righteousness. And if we think about it, the hope of the cosmos rests in the character and goodness of God. And when we look at the state of things in the world, the hope of the cosmos rests in the judgment of God. I mean, think about it. a world that continues on as it is, going in the direction that it is. We can't have that. It can't endure before a holy God. And if we really knew what we wanted, we wouldn't want it to continue this way. The moral confusion in our world right now is heavy. The moral rebellion is even heavier. A renewed world, the kingdom of God, it has to have judgment. And it starts with each of us. But our holy God, who judges in transcendent glory, is still the merciful one. The compassionate king who's near invites you to repent. He will destroy the wicked, make no mistake about it. But while you can, take advantage of the patience of God and call out to him. Cry for help. He will save you. Repent. Believe the gospel. Christian, call out to the Lord in truth. Whatever your need, whatever your desire, Jesus, our great king, we're told in scripture, lives to intercede for us. We should conclude, look at this final call to praise in verse 21. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. And we've come full circle, haven't we? David began where he now ends, with a call for and commitment to praise. And this song, as we've seen, is beautiful and fitting to be sung for the Lord. But here's the thing, Sun Valley Church, we can sing a better song. We can sing a better song than David just sang. Why? Because you know the great King Jesus Christ. We can celebrate the exact same things that David did, but we can do it with greater precision, greater understanding, and greater knowledge of God because you know Jesus. We know that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of both the transcendent and the imminent, the greatness and the goodness. The Holy Son of God draws near to save and love a people to the end. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we, we, ex we exalt you as this psalm instructs because you are great and because you are good. And we pray, Father, that, that, that we would understand your greatness, but we pray, Father, that we'd be in awe of your goodness as well, that we would extol you for being high and lifted up, great in power and majesty, but you are glorious in your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your compassion, and your patience. Great is your faithfulness, O God, our Father. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.